you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at parts of the entire chapter, but I'm going to focus in and read in just a moment from just one part of it, verse number 12 through verse number 19. As you're turning there, may I just remind you again, here's what we'd like you to do during this time. If you're watching at home, drop a comment if you have not already, letting us know that you're there, letting, more importantly, not just us know that you're there, but letting all the other folks that are watching the stream right now know that you're there as well, just so that we all know we're in it together and that we're participating as the body, even if in an unusual format. Uh, The Lord has been faithful to us. He has been faithful to us not just this last month, but He has been faithful to His people for thousands and thousands of years. We are not the first people to go through unique circumstances or difficulty or trial. He has had His people go through experiences like that all the way throughout their entire history. And yet at every step of the process, God demonstrates and proves Himself to be a faithful God to His people and a faithful God to the promises and His intentions to unfold His kingdom throughout history. And we celebrate a very important and special part of that today as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where it looked like the kingdom which was unfolding in Christ all of a sudden comes down to a crashing end. Can you imagine the defeat that the disciples would have felt in these moments? But then ultimately God overcame the defeat and the sorrow and brought forth His Son from the grave. And once again, the people of God celebrate and rejoice and have hope because of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is known as the great resurrection chapter of the Scriptures because we look so intently at the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us now, the implications of this. And so let me read together verse number 12 through verse number 19 today. The Bible says this, Now if Christ is preached that He's been raised from the dead, how do so many among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, our faith is empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ who He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. But for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, listen to this, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Let's pray together very quickly. Father, we come before you again expressing our need and our dependence on you. Father, we need your son. We need you, your grace and your mercy in our lives. We need to be close to you during this season And Father, today, especially as we think about the resurrection of Christ, God, we come to you with great hope, asking God for a special time of closeness to you, that God, we would turn from our sins, repent of our sins, and draw near to you. And as a result, God, that you would draw near back to us. God, we need that from you today. And so we pray that, Lord, as we consider your Son and the resurrection, that God, you might once again flood our hearts and our minds with great hope and peace and strength, that you'd make your people strong, and that as a result of that, that would not just be for our own good or our own interests, but that God, through that, through you making your people strong, God, we pray that you would send forth your people as a great army, an army of hope, an army that can indeed share the life-changing love of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, I pray that you do those things in these moments that I can't do, 
Lord, I can't with my words, my gifts, my talents, my research, my study change anybody's life. But Father, you can do that through the preaching of your word, through the word of God and through the spirit of God. And so even over the Internet today, I pray, God, I pray that your spirit would be at work in a special way to draw men and women, boys and girls to your son. And we'd find a life in you and that you'd give us strength. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. It is my custom when I preach to you to start off my sermon with a question. I try really hard to come up with a catchy question, something that's going to bait your attention. Today, I come up with three questions. I'm not going to give you just one question today, but three. I think that all three of these questions are important. And I think that all three of these questions should grab your attention and cause us to lean in for a moment. The first question is simply this. Why is the resurrection important? I mean, aside from the fact that it's been celebrated for 2,000 years, theologically speaking, philosophically speaking, scientifically speaking, why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important to us such that we would celebrate it year after year after year for 2,000 years? Why is the resurrection important? Question one. Question two, and I think this is a really important question, is there a reason to think that it really did happen? I mean, is this true? Or is it just wishful thinking? Is it rumor that transpired in the first century? Is there reason to think that it really could have happened? And then the last question, what hope does it give us? If it really did happen, it's the so what question. I think you should ask the so what question in any sermon you listen to, any speech that you listen to. So someone says a whole bunch of stuff to you. The question now is so what? So what does that mean for me? So there you have it. There are our questions today. Why is the resurrection so important to us? And is there reason to think that it really did happen? Then last of all, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. What does it mean for us? What hope does it give us? So let's tackle those questions here today from the text. Question one, why is the resurrection so important to us? From the passage that I just read from a moment ago, verse number 12 through verse number 19, the Apostle Paul answers that question for us. But now what I want you to do is zoom in especially on verse number 13 through verse number 17. See, the backdrop of this is a little bit broader than just Jesus' resurrection. So this is what we're focusing on today. And this is in many ways what Paul is focusing on in the chapter. But the bigger backdrop of this discussion here in chapter 15 was a debate that many people had in the first century about whether or not there is a resurrection for us in general. We call it the general resurrection. You see, there were certain Jewish people, the Sadducees in particular, that denied there was any resurrection of the dead. And so what that means is you live, you die, game over, that's just it, right? But the Pharisees, for all the times that Jesus not only disagreed with the Pharisees, but for all of the times that he took great shots at the Pharisees, this is actually a point that he agreed with the Pharisees on. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so some people have said, no, there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. And so the chapter or this part that I read to you starts off with that debate in the backdrop. If Christ is preached and he was raised from the dead, why do some people say there's no resurrection from the dead? Now watch what he says, verse 13. For if there is no resurrection of the dead, broadly speaking, people, in other words, if it is just flat out impossible for people to come back from the dead, then Christ wouldn't be risen. And watch this. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. Here's what Paul wants you to see. That listen, we can, we can develop beautiful theological systems. We can come up with some very articulate statements. We can have our bumper stickers that are kitschy and cliche-ish that really give thumbs up to people. You could do all of that stuff, but I'm telling you, if there is no resurrection, then man, our, our preaching is empty. And our faith is empty. Look, let me just put that in context for somebody like me. I've been a preacher of the gospel now for 24 years. That means that literally every sermon I've ever preached in my life is for nothing. It was all just make-believe. And worse than that, the faith that I've had now for 24 years and the faith that you have had for all of these years, listen, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then all of that faith is misguided. What Paul wants you to see here is that, man, if you don't have a resurrection, you don't have a gospel. If you don't have a resurrection, you don't have a hope. If you don't have a resurrection, my dear friend, you have nothing. He goes on to say, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, our faith is empty. Verse 15, yes, we are found to be false witnesses of God. Listen, it's not just that our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. We are liars in the name of God. Whoa. And that is, by the way, the kind of thing that God takes very seriously. We are found to be false witnesses of God. Why? Because you testified that God raised him up when, in fact, he did not get raised. Verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Now, verse 17, he puts it very concisely for us. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You are still at distance from God. Remember what I just talked about a moment ago when I came up the last time. Listen, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and the sin that we have in our lives, it alienates us from God. It it estranges us from God. It makes relationship with God impossible. And what that would mean is that if Christ is still in the grave, then you and I are still in our sins and we're still estranged from God Listen, what Paul wants us to see is that, listen, if if we don't have a resurrection, not only do you not have any hope whatsoever that this is true, but you don't have a cure for your biggest problem of all, your sin problem. You see, your, your problems are bigger than finances right now. Your problems are bigger than healthcare right now. Your problem as a human being, if if you're not a Christian, is a sin problem. Because the one who made you, made you for himself. That you may love him and know him and he may love you back. And commune with you back. But your sin separates you from God. And if you die in that state of separation, it goes on forever. And so, if there is no death, burial, and resurrection, then you and I are still in our sins. What Paul wants us to see here just very clearly, that man, if we don't have a resurrection, we don't have a gospel at all. I I remember a few years ago when I was a young preacher early on in my ministry, I was teaching a Sunday school class one time, and it was a Sunday school class full of good Christian folks. I don't doubt their salvation. I'm not trying to badger them when I use this illustration here today, but I remember a discussion that shocked me. It was Easter Sunday. We were doing an Easter Sunday Uh, Sunday school lesson, and as we were going around, I started talking about the importance of the resurrection, and I asked them this question. If tomorrow they found the dead body of Jesus Christ, would it change your faith? And I know they meant well, I know that they were good-intentioned, but there was just overwhelmingly throughout the room absurdity being spewed. 
what you got in response to that question, and again, I know they meant very well, but what they got in response to the question was, of course, I would keep on believing. No, nothing would change for me. I would still be a Christian. I think the Apostle Paul is saying to us right here that if you don't have a res- resurrection, you can't be. You don't have a gospel if, in fact, Christ is not raised. So to that first question today, why is the resurrection important? Well, simply this. Without the resurrection, you don't have the gospel. I think there's a number of implications for this. For you, spiritually speaking, and for me, what this means is, when I draw near to Christ, when I seek Christ, when I pray to Christ, when I find affection towards Christ, I do it not just because of the cross, but I do it because of the empty tomb as well. Furthermore, as a gospel witness, it means that when you proclaim the gospel, you must mention this too. This is the cornerstone of our hope right here. So question one, why is the resurrection important? In short, the answer to that question is because without the resurrection, you don't have a gospel. Question number two, this is an important question. Question's this, is there, it's one thing to say, okay, you gotta have it. The real question now is, okay, do you have it? Is there a resurrection? Was there really a resurrection of Jesus? Is there a reason to think that it really did happen? And just pause for a moment to recognize the gravity of that question. I mean, there are some 7 billion people on this earth today, and not all one of us have ever experienced anything like this. One thing that we experience uniformly in this life is death. We all experience it ourselves our loved ones, our friends experience it. We watch them go through it. It's a, it's a sad, but it's a common fact of our life that people we love and know, they come to their end, they die, and they go into death, and we never see them come back. And so it's not, a, not un, unusual to ask this question. Is there really a reason to think that it happened? Well, I think so. Go back to verse number 3 through verse number 8. The Apostle Paul here <clears throat> gives us just sort of this little starter kit of evidence. This is where the apologist really wants to come out of me here and just focus in on verse number thir- 3 through verse number 8. If you don't know what apologetics is, it's the defense of the faith. Uh, de- defense of the faith. So in other words, what Paul is doing in verse number 3 through verse number 8, he's doing apologetics. He's defending the very idea of resurrection because surely we're not the only ones that are going to ask that question, right? Is there really reason to think this happened? I mean, look, I, if I've learned anything in my study of ancient philosophy in the ancient world over these last 20 years of academics, I've learned this, that yes, the ancients didn't know as much as we know today, perhaps, in some things like science and other things like that. But make no mistake, these were not dummies. They were not Neanderthals that just believed anything for whatever reason. No, they were smart, very intelligent people. And I could give you lots of examples of that, but I won't because that's not the point today. Verse 3 through verse number 8. For I delivered to you that which I also received... That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That He was buried and that he, was, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay, there's the statement. Is there any reason, Paul, to think that this really happened? Well, actually, yes, verse 5 through verse number 8. Watch this. And that He was seen by Cephas. Who is Cephas? Cephas is Peter. Now, there's all sorts of beautiful and important things to point out about Peter. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, the Lord has risen and he appeared to Peter, the gospel of Luke tells us. So Peter, 
the one who will become the rock, named the rock here. The one who will make the great confession in Matthew chapter 16. I say that you're the Christ, son of the living God. That's the one he appears to. And he goes from being a coward now to being the man that stands at Pentecost. He's radically transformed. Paul goes on. He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. We have all sorts of statements throughout the Gospels of where Jesus would appear at one time or another to the 12 disciples. But in Matthew chapter 28, verse number 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, the Bible says. In other words, all 12 of them gathered together, see him. Verse 6, after this, he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. Now watch this next statement. It's an important statement. Of whom the greater part remained to the present Some have fallen asleep. So in other words, when Paul is writing this some years later, after Jesus has appeared to a group of 500 people at one time, he tells us, oh, by the way, most of those people are still alive. What's the importance of that statement? What Paul means for you to take away from that is, look, most of them are still alive, so therefore you can go talk to them. Now, obviously, we can't. But the church that he's writing to here in Corinth, they could. So in other words, what I'm saying to you is you can go ask them yourself. They were there. They saw Christ raised up. Now, we might be inclined to think after that, that, well, you know, that's all well and good, but Jesus only seemed to have appeared to people who already believed this stuff. So the eyewitnesses are biased. Of course they're going to say they saw him. They have a motive. They have something driving them. They don't want to let go of Jesus. They don't want to let go of their hope. So they have a motive. And so, of course, they're going to say those things. So the whole eyewitness thing of Jesus appearing to people is tainted, so goes the argument, because only believers report to seeing him. Well, I would say this to you. It is true that everybody who ended up seeing him ended up becoming believers. And so by the time Paul is writing this, yes, they were believers, But it is not true that they were all believers when Christ appeared to them. There's at least two here in the story of what Paul says to us that for all the evidence we have, were not believers in the moments that Jesus appeared to them. And that something transformed them. I suspect it was the fact that Jesus appeared to them. So watch this, verse number 6. And after this he was seen by the 500... The greater part of those who are still alive and remain, some of them have fallen asleep. But now watch this, verse number 7. But after this, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. James, who is this James that Paul is speaking of here? There's multiple Jameses in the New Testament, but this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, why is that important? Some of you will remember this. I've mentioned this at the beginning of our study of the book of James. The very beginning, James writes, James, a bondservant of Christ and of the, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this James? It is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, the story is this. In John chapter 7, the siblings of Jesus are mentioned. Now, why is that important? Because they're mentioned in such a way that it's very clear that they think Jesus is lost his mind. They think Jesus is not the Messiah. They think he's crazy, and you would too, right? I mean, if your brother or sister or somebody walked around claiming to be the Son of God, you'd think they were crazy too. James is a half-brother of Jesus. He's heard Jesus talk about all these things. They're skeptics of their brother in John chapter 7. That's what we know. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 right here, we're told that Jesus appears to James. Then in Acts chapter 1, James is now standing with 
the church gathered in, in, the, in Jerusalem, waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. What does that mean? It means that we start off with him as a skeptic in John chapter 7. Jesus, we're told, is appearing to him in 1 Corinthians 15. The next thing we hear about James is that he's with the church. It seems like he's feeling this Christianity thing out. It seems like he's already become a believer. Then the next thing we hear about him is in Acts chapter 15. He is the pillar of the church of Jerusalem, meaning the pastor. He's clearly a convert now. And then the next thing we hear about him is James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the picture of James. James is not a believer. Jesus appears to him. He becomes a believer and becomes a pastor and becomes so much of a believer that he would say things like this. I am a bondservant of God and the Lord, that's his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, Yes, it's true that James is a believer now, but it wasn't true that James was a believer when Christ appeared to him. All the evidence and indications seem to suggest he was not. And it was the appearance of Christ to James that seems to have had this catapulting effect on his belief. There's one other person, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, And last of all, he was seen by me also in verse number 8. You remember Paul? Paul in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, he's persecuting the church. Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church further. And Christ appears to him and knocks him off of his horse. He blinds his eyes. He says to him, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul ends up becoming a believer. He he goes from a, a persecutor of the church to the greatest other than Christ, the greatest missionary and theologian of church history. Wow, what a convert. So here's the thing. It is true that many of them, or all of them, are believers when it's all said and done, but there's at least two of them that weren't believers in the first place. And furthermore, we can't really actually discount the the eyewitness reports of those who did believe. Listen, again, they're not fools. They claim to have saw them. So to the question, is there reason to think that this really did happen? Yes, There are people that see the tomb empty. There are people that see Christ alive again. And throughout the first century, those reports could be validated. And yet what we don't get from the first century are all sorts of conflicting reports with what Paul says here. And believe you me, if that was not what happened, we would have those conflicting reports. And so is there reason to think that this really did happen? Yes, there is. Last question. So you've asked the questions today, Jamie. So why is it important theologically? In short, if you don't have a gospel, you don't, I mean, if you don't have a resurrection, you don't have a gospel. Second question, is there a reason to think that it really did happen? Yes, there are eyewitnesses both to the empty tomb and to the risen Christ himself. Some of those weren't believers in the first place, but they sure became believers once they saw him. And I suspect I would too, and you would too. And the last question, what hope does that give us? It's the so what question. Why is that important? Jesus is raised. Okay, so what? That's just some historical fact from antiquity that we're supposed to walk around with, I guess. Well, I guess you could treat it that way if you wanted to, but let me tell you why it's important. Paul answers this question, verse number 20. In verse number 22, watch what he says here. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become for us the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me explain what that means. First fruits can mean the first one. It can also mean sort of the exemplar. So Christ is the exemplar of resurrection. 
He himself is raised from the dead. And I don't have time to show you this all the way throughout the chapter, but much of what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is showing us that, see, Christ is raised, therefore you can be raised. Christ's body was raised this way, your body will be raised this way. Christ is the paradigm. He is the exemplar. He is the model that our resurrection will follow. It will be a bodily resurrection. Ours will be because His was. Ours is possible because His actually happened. So Paul wants us to see that Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Watch this, verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So in other words, look, we get into this death problem because of one person in the past, Adam. We get resurrection because of someone else in the past, Christ, who is the later Adam, the second Adam, our Redeemer and our resurrected Lord, who gives us resurrection as well. So in short, what does this mean? for? Why does this give us hope? Well, I would say this. If Christ is raised from the dead, then our hope in life after death is not in vain. If our hope for life after death were just that, just a hope, untethered to some other realities, it wouldn't be much of a hope at all. But our hope in life after death is not untethered. It is not disconnected to some important reality. No, it has a tangible, direct connection to the resurrection of Jesus. Because He is raised, I shall be raised. Because He lives again, I shall live again. Jesus said it this in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 through 18 makes the same point. Paul makes it clear Christ is raised from the dead and the dead in Christ will rise. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In short, it gives us hope because it gives us life after death. It means that death in this life is not final. Maybe you've just tasted death from someone near you. Maybe today you're struggling with death from someone that died a a while back, but there's something about this season that draws your attention back to it and you grieve again. Maybe you yourself are sick. Maybe you yourself are close to death's door, closer than you'd ever want to be, but close for sure. What hope is there? (laughs) I say there's hope. Hope in Christ. Hope in His resurrected body and hope that He will raise you too. There is hope for that. Oh, can I just mention one other kind of hope? This gives us, let me just say this. Listen to me. If Christ and His power to be raised from the dead is enough for us to be raised from the dead physically after we die. If, look, if Christ can, has enough power to raise me from the dead one day when this body dies, then doesn't Christ have enough power to overcome your sin problems right now? Doesn't Christ have enough, if He's got enough power to raise us from the dead, then doesn't He have enough power to raise you to new life even right now, to pull you out of the trench and the ditch? Doesn't Christ have enough power to change your life now? Yes, He does. He does, He does, and He does. So, what hope does it give us? I say it gives us every hope. Without the resurrection... We have nothing. 
And with the resurrection, we have everything. In just a minute, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless us this day and help us to be faithful to Him and to honor Him and to glorify Him. I'm going to ask you if you just, right there where you're at right now, if you would pause with your family, whoever you're with, bow your head, and take the posture of prayer before God for just a moment. Let me ask you this question as you're before God. Do you know Christ? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? I suspect that there's some of you listening today and watching this feed that don't. And yet you're here. And I suspect that you're here because you want to know Him. You clearly want something. And that's good. And I would tell you what you want, what you, what you long for, that flavor you long to taste is Christ. And here's the good news, you can have Him. Everything that you long for, you can have in Him. Peace and strength, redemption and hope, it's all yours. If you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and place your faith in Him. Today, if you've never done that, what about today? What about right now? In this moment, gathered together in live stream, what about right now? Pray this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that separates me from you. But I believe that you died for me. And I turn my life now to you. Save me. Redeem me. Make me whole. And give me life. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Brother or sister, if you prayed that prayer, then you are precisely that. You are my brother, my sister. We want to know about this so we can help you. We want to pray with you. We want to guide you. Would you email us or would you just text this to us today? If you'd prayed that prayer, would you text SAVED to the number on the screen? It'll be up in just a moment. You can see it. You'll see that number. Would you just text that to us? So would you respond to us that way to let us know? Maybe you're here today, you're one of our church members, you're already a believer. You just need us to pray in some way or you want the body of Christ here to pray. Drop a comment right now in the feed. I promise you, your church family will see that prayer and will lift you up and pray for you today. Maybe you're here today and you, you don't feel comfortable dropping a comment. It's too personal. You want to talk to somebody though. You respond. You text that number too, saying, I want to I want to talk to someone. Shoot us an email. We will follow up with you and pray with you. Hey, friends. Hey, church. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that changes everything for us. It gives us hope where there is no hope. It gives us life where there is no life. It gives us Christ. And my prayer for you today is that you will find Him to be more pleasant, more beautiful, more satisfying than ever before. Father, bless us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.